I'm going to ask people in a second, I'm going to ask for some actual answers for people to tell me about their bucket list. Okay, so if you've got a bucket list, have a think what's on it. I'm going to ask for some shouted out answers in a moment, please. To be really clear, a bucket list is quite a bleak concept. It is a thing to do before you kick the bucket. Before you... A positive way of saying it, things you'd like to do is while you're still alive. There you go, there's a positive way to say that. As opposed to things you will never get, things you don't want to have missed out on doing by the time you've died, basically. So, what might be on people's bucket lists? What have people got on their bucket list? Shout out some answers, people. Going to Australia. There's a very heavy hint from my wife there. Uh, <laughs> Northern Lights. That is my first one. That is my bucket list. I am desperate to go on one of those like glass things where you sleep underneath the Northern Lights. I don't care where you do it. Apparently, you can do it in North Wales if you get it right. But um, I'd rather not do it there. Um, so that's one of the, any other bucket list ideas. Have a convertible. Oh, fly first class. She's up levels, Australia travel. Okay, right. <laughs> Jamie's very easily pleased, hence being married to me. <laughs> so, yeah, my, my bucket list, I thought I'd share some of them this morning. I've got, I'd love to sleep at one of these glass domed things under the Northern Lights. I don't just want to travel to Iceland and sleep in a glass dome. The Northern Lights have to be there, and apparently they're not guaranteed. Um, so closer to home, I'd love to go to one of those islands where you just hang out with puffins. I've always loved puffins. I've always loved them. I think they're amazing. Um, and then finally, there are quite a few historical places that I'd love to go and visit. So like the temples and like the Aztec world. Nathan, did you get to see some of these when you were traveling away? Not these exact ones, obviously. Or like the pyramids, things like that. Like I've been to the Colosseum and I loved it. I absolutely, I've got, I think our world is incredible, right? It's full of brilliant things. And that's, what, that's why nature documentaries keep getting made. That's why they're so popular, because this world is amazing. There's so much to experience, and so we want to see things with our own eyes. That's why I love the podcasts I do, because they tell me about our world and things I'd never get to know and understand without them. So with all that in mind, can we open our Bibles now to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17? 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Ah. Oh. Let's put a bit of a dampener, isn't it? I guess I should put my bucket list in the bin. Is that what John's saying here, that these should all just be sacked off? I shouldn't have these hopes and dreams and desires. But that does make me think. Because if you know your Bible even a little bit, the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16, starts by saying that God so loved the world. Well, how come God's allowed to love it, but I'm not? Maybe it's a different kind of love. That'll be it, Okay. But what about Jesus? Like Jesus loved the world and he loved things in the world. In fact, so much so that people were able to accuse him of being a drunk and a glutton 
because he enjoyed eating and he enjoyed drinking. Again, is he special? I mean, he is. But is he different to us in some way, but we have to live like monks? But then Jesus didn't pray this for us either. In fact, he prayed, my prayer is not that you take them, meaning us, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So what's going on there? Also, we've been working through 1 John for a couple of weeks now, and we've seen that John is writing to a group of believers who are really discouraged. All their mates have gone off and started hanging out with these false teachers who seem to be teaching something different. And we've seen that John is trying to encourage these guys. So why has he written this? (laughs) From all we've seen, materialism doesn't seem to be their big temptation and problem. They're discouraged. That seems to be their big problem. If he was writing to us, maybe in the West, or like big city bankers, perhaps I'd get it. But this, I don't understand why he's written to these guys. If you've wondered any of these questions, even as we've read through, as you've thought about it before, or even as I've asked them, you've thought, yeah, it's a great question. Those are good questions to be asking about bits of the Bible. Because it's really easy to not understand things properly if we take them out of context. Because these are really challenging verses. And they're really important. Because the whole of the letter of 1 John changes from these verses onwards. From here on, from verse 15 onwards, the whole of the letter changes completely. Before here, John has been writing about light and darkness and how the darkness is passing away. From here onwards, though, he's going to talk a lot about love and about the world and how it is passing away. Before these verses, John has mainly been teaching truth to encourage these believers he's writing to. But from here on in, he starts giving loads of commands. He starts telling them what to do. In fact, from here on in, this is where John starts to apply all of the truth that he's written about in the first chapter and a bit. So we're going to walk through these verses slowly, one verse at a time, and hopefully along the way answer all of those questions I've just thrown out at you. And we're going to see the way my simple brain works. We're going to see what John says, what John means, and why John says it. There's more detail to these. If you've got the question sheets, there's a gap to fill in what the extra detail is. But this is effectively what we're going to see. And it's important to spend time on these because they are the headline for the rest of the application that John is going to give. So first of all, and much more briefly than the rest of it, don't get too excited, what John says, do not love the world. That's our first thing we're going to look at. Now, I've learned a lot about myself the last couple of years. And one of the things I've learned about me is that I don't get it when people are trying to be subtle. So for example, if I've done something and someone says to me, oh, do you think you could have done that a different way? I'll, in my head, be thinking, no, or else I would have done it that way. I won't necessarily understand they're saying, you should have done it a different way. I prefer much more directness and bluntness. I don't get this kind of subtlety. So I love how direct and blunt John is here. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. Don't do it, John says. Do not love the world. Full stop. Now we are going to move on. But I think it's helpful to sit with how uncomfortable that might make us feel. Because that does feel a bit uncomfortable, right? We want to explain away what that really means and change and move on from there. 
John's going to tell us what he means in verse 16, but until we get there, it is really good to sit with how uncomfortable this can make us feel. Because this is a biblical truth that isn't just in this letter. There are things, if you claim to be a Christian, there are things you cannot love if you claim to be a Christian. James 4 verse 4 says it. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Jesus himself taught in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says there, he's talking about you cannot serve God and money. John's saying the same thing. If we're Christians, we are not to love the world. And not, as I might want to explain it, because, you know, it's a tightrope we might walk on and we could lose balance and tip into one. That isn't what John says. John says it's worse than that. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. John says, if anyone loves the world, though they might claim to love the Father, their life shows something different. John's crystal clear. How we live and what we love demonstrates whether or not we love God at all. How we live and what we love demonstrates whether we love God at all. And there are some things, John says, that if we love them, that demonstrates we don't really love God. Okay, so with that discomfort, we are going to move on and see what John means by that. What does John mean by loving the world? Well, that's what he tells us. Secondly, what John means, love for the world in verse 16. Because words are funny things, aren't they? I love words. My wife's a linguist as well. We love words in our family. I love learning about words. So I le recently learned the word, um, you know, apron? You know what an apron is, right? I was going to bring one, but I thought we'd know what an apron was. Uh, originally, that word was napron, because this is your nape, isn't it, around here? It was a napron. And over time, we got lazy, and we stole the N from the front of napron and added it to the A to make an, and it become an apron. Isn't that interesting? That's basically what happened with this word. It evolved into a completely different word. I love things like that. I also love it when words can have more than one meaning. Now, this might not be true, but I was told it by my lecturer at university, so I trust him. Apparently, when level crossings were first introduced, you know the bits where you get across a train track? When they were first introduced in the country, they had signs that said, wait while lights are flashing. Which means, while the lights are flashing, Wait. Yeah, we all know that that means that. Yeah, not in Yorkshire. In Yorkshire, the word while means until. Yeah. So to them, the sign read, wait until lights are flashing. And apparently it didn't end well. So the signs now say, stop when lights show, which is a lot clearer. See, words can mean more than one thing. And that is what happens here. And there's a risk that that could be really confusing. Because back in verse 10 of chapter 2, as John has already used this word love, and he means it to mean looking out for the good of somebody else, looking out for the benefit of somebody else. And also back in chapter 2, verse 2, he's already used the word world to mean basically all of humanity and creation. So putting those two together, we could read verse 15 and think that John is telling us not to look out for the good of creation and the good of other people. Greta Thunberg, sit down. 
Is that what John means? Well, no, reassuringly, that isn't what John is telling us. The word love here is talking about finding our deepest joy and our worth, as we've just sung about, and our satisfaction and our pleasure and our identity in that thing that we love. And John shows that by how he explains what he means by love for the world. So in verse 16, for everything in the world, he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that comes not from the Father, but from the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are the things the world will tell us to find our pleasure and our identity in. And by the world, John is talking about all those things that are against God and will try and draw you away from obeying him and loving him wholeheartedly. The eagle-eyed among us would have spotted that that is a group of three. John loves groups of three. And we have another one of those right here. We had them back in chapter one, if you remember when I preached last. And in verse 16, we have a group of three where the headline idea then is explained by the other two. And so he starts with the overall idea of what love for the world looks like. And he says it is the lust of the flesh. By the lust of the flesh, he means just the way that we all naturally react to things, to circumstances. Before we become Christians, those things that we're all driven by and want and love and find our pleasure in. That's what love for the world could be summarized as, just loving the things you loved when you weren't a Christian. But to explain what that looks like a little bit more, he gives us the other two. And the first is the lust of the eyes. Now, lust of the eyes is John talking about, you know, fancying somebody in the way we might often think of it. Instead, he means that feeling we all get when we see something we really, really want. Like Elaine's Mega Drive earlier. Master System, sorry. It was a Mega Drive for me. That's why I mentioned it. She never got it. Now, that might mean fancying lust. You see someone you really want. But it could also just be seeing an object and wanting it. And we all battle that in some way or other, right? It might not even be an object. We see infants and toddlers do it, don't we? They kick off a little tantrum because they want what is usually the most dangerous object in the room. But that doesn't stop when you stop being a toddler. Jim and I often joke about the perfect number of guitars. Does anybody who's not a guitarist know what the perfect number of guitars is? Just one more. (laughs) But it might not be objects. It might be hobbies or achievements or sporting success or a fit body or whatever. Our adverts bombard us with it, with new phones, new consoles, new TVs, new trainers, new whatever. We're shown these things. We're told we should want them and get them. And so we want them and we do everything we can to get them. That is what the lust of the eyes, wanting things and doing whatever we can to get them. That's what John's talking about here. But then when we get them, that's where the final part of this trio kicks in. The pride of life we have in our version. Other translations have this as the pride in one's possessions. And it means that feeling of kind of, ah, yeah, I have that thing. I set out for a goal. I've achieved it. Great. That contentment, that satisfaction we get from having the thing that we wanted so much beforehand. It's the cycle we all get involved in, right? You see something, you want it, you do what you can to get it, and then you feel pretty good about having it. For a bit and then it all starts again doesn't it with the next thing and john is saying don't get sucked into that don't find your pleasure or your identity or your happiness in getting and owning the next thing or achieving the next thing or getting to the next thing you've set on your list don't make that your goal 
Don't find your satisfaction in that. Don't the lusting desire for that car or the house or those clothes or whatever. John says that feeling doesn't come from God. That feeling, John says, comes from the world. Everything that would try and drag you away from God. The world has got a far bigger influence on us than we'd like to admit. And if we let ourselves get caught up in it, John says, the risk is love for the Father might not really be in us. This is really hard, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, maybe you're immune to all of this, but I know I'm not. Everywhere we look, we're told to live this way. It starts when you're a toddler with the adverts on the kids' TV channels or on YouTube. It carries on at school where you're mocked or you can be looked down on if you don't have the right clothes or the right streaming system or the right phone or tablet or games console. And we convince ourselves as kids, that's what I need to just fit in or that's what I need to just make me that little bit happier. But it doesn't get easier as you get older. There's always the next thing, isn't there? The next house or car or shoes or phone or promotion or success. We're bombarded with adverts that make us feel like if we don't use the, new, uh, the newest 12-blade la laser razor from Gillette, then we might as well go and live in a bush. don't know why I wrote that sentence for me to say. <laughs> I am so prone to this. I confess. Right now, I am really prone to this. Last year, uh, we were given a really special holiday that we never thought we'd get to go on. And as a result, I obsessed about getting a better phone to have a new camera. Here it is. I kept the box because I'm one of those nerds. I obsessed about it. I researched it and I spent hours and hours and hours looking for this phone, trying to find the best deal. How can I get this phone so I can get these? It's all for the pictures. So we have a better camera. When we, all the memories when we get back, it's for that. I obsessed over it. Finally, I found one on Facebook. It was an absolute steal. So I went and met the guy. I took out a big chunk of money with Jamie's permission. Went and met the guy and he gave me it. Here it is. Got home. It's a fake. An app, so this is worthless. Looks, looks the real deal. Worth nothing. Stupid. We get sucked in, don't we? By objects that we think will make us feel satisfied. And then whether we get them or not, they let us down, really. And it can creep into churches, too, though. It isn't just personal things. It can creep into whole cultures and churches. I read this recently in a book. And I'm not reading this to slam us. I'm reading this to hopefully encourage us that it can sneak in without us realizing over the years, it's been reiterated to me time and time again that owning property is a better stewardship of my money and the wisest course of action in terms of security for the future. I started to conflate home ownership with godly living. There are lots of benefits to owning your own home, of course, but I was, in effect, discipled into it as if I would somehow be more Christ-like if I owned property. That's quite ironic seeing as Jesus didn't own his own home. Now, to be 100% clear, there is nothing, or there can be nothing wrong with owning your own home. Mike and Sinead, Stu uh, and Joe, I'm not saying you are sinning by currently buying a house. Anyone else here? In fact, there's nothing wrong with having good phones and having these things. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 tells us that God has given us everything to enjoy. The answer to this is not to live a life of complete self-denying misery, removing all comfort and pleasure, eating only bread and drinking only water, wearing sackcloth only. No, John is saying that don't make that your ultimate love and passion and your goal. Don't make that the stuff you love and obey more than you love and obey God. 
but I've just done something that might disqualify me from everything we're planning on doing for the next six months, right? I've just confessed that phone is an example of how I struggle and fail in this. So does that mean, verse 15, that I don't really love God at all? That I'm not really a Christian? Love for the Father isn't really in me. Is that, is that what I'm admitting in front of you all today? Well, I want to be really clear that we mustn't take this text out of context of the rest of the letter. The Monsell team have already started quoting it me jokingly, but I always say the phrase, a text out of context is a con. Thanks, Wesley. You take a text out of its wider context, you lose its real meaning. And John has already been really clear that sinless perfection is not what we're aiming for. And that is not the standard. When we feel guilt about this kind of thing, we need to remember 1 John 1 verse 9 and 1 John 2 verses 1 to 2. When the devil will throw guilt at us for falling into these traps, for buying the phones, for lusting after whatever it is, we need to remember 1 John 1 verse 9 and 1 John 2 verses 1 to 2. 1, uh, 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And 1 John 2 verses 1 to 2, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I want to encourage anybody feeling battered right now that getting this wrong is not the defining sign that we don't really love God. Failing at this does not necessarily indicate you don't really love God. No, instead, refusing to admit we struggle with this and then confessing it when we get it wrong might mean that. So if you know you struggle with this and get this wrong all the time, praise God and then tell him and then tell others and ask for forgiveness and ask others to help you grow in this area and then crack on fighting this temptation for whatever that thing you want that drives you. And John wants to help us fight. John wants to help us resist temptation. And so John tells us the third thing we're going to see this morning, which is why John says it, it's all passing away. Why John has said all this? Because it's all passing away. On Twitter, a lot of you know I'm on Twitter, and yes, I refuse to call it X. Um, I follow an account, I follow lots of accounts, but this account sends only one tweet every day. It does it at different times every day, only sends one tweet, and it is the same tweet every single day. Here it is. You will die someday. Now that might sound bleak, but this account gets over 60,000 followers. <laughs> I think it's important because we all know we need to remember this. It reminds me of the famous story that is probably not true, that Roman generals, you know, when they'd come home from a big battle, everyone be on the street like celebrating and parading them and welcoming them in. The story goes that they'd have a slave who'd whisper in their ear, memento mori, which means remember you will die one day. In the middle of all that fame and adulation and celebration, that reminder, you're only mortal, you'll die. Now, as I said, that probably didn't happen. But the story sticks, doesn't it? We like that story because we all know it is important to get this kind of perspective on everything we get distracted by. And John says that it's even more important for Christians to remember it. Have a look at verse 17, because the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John wants us to have the right perspective on the things we might get sucked in by. 
that we might think they're important. They might feel important, but the truth is, like everything else in creation, it'll pass away. It won't last. Everything the world sells us, everything our hearts tell us is most important, will pass away. We all know, don't we, that we will pass away. I hope I'm not breaking that news to anybody here. No one gets out of this life alive. We enter with nothing. We spend the next 80 or so years getting and giving things, and then we leave and take nothing with us. And it is important to remember that because even though all this stuff feels so important right now that it's like a big enough of a thing to live wholeheartedly for now, John reminds us it's passing away. It's going to die. There is only one thing that will last, verse 17, whoever does the will of God lives forever. Again, John is saying how we live now demonstrates whether we really do have the eternal life that only God's children have. John is saying that what we do now, how we live now, that demonstrates whether we really have the eternal life that only God's children have. How we obey this and live this out demonstrates whether we're really his at all. And therefore, whether we will live forever with him. See, the truth is, even the most celebrated, famous person in this room, in a hundred or so years, the majority of people will have forgotten you. One person, I think it's John Chrysostom, he's an old church guy. He said, if you knew how quickly people would forget you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. If you knew how quickly people would forget you after your death, you will not seek in your life to please anyone but God. And yet we get so quickly sucked in, don't we, by the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and we get our priorities all wrong, don't we? Temporary things feel like they're really important. Popularity, success, relationships, things, objects, pleasure, sports success, houses, happiness, all of those things can so easily dominate our thoughts and our behaviors. And John wants to remind us that none of it will last. Be fit, die anyway. Everything here is going to pass away. So don't live for it. Don't look to it to give you a satisfaction and a happiness and a joy that you were designed for only God to be able to fill. Basically, in three verses, he summarizes the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Should have had a word with Solomon. This life is a mist. It's a vapor. It's passing away. So enjoy it, but don't make it ultimate. Don't make it more important than it should be because there's something much more and something much better and something much more long-lasting. And we get the perfect example of that, don't we, in Jesus? Who left all comfort and joy and pleasure and perfect unity with the Father and wanting nothing and lacking nothing because he loved us so much. And who lived a life as a man of sorrows with no homes, no house, no possession, barely any friends, and they were pretty useless, before being tortured, stripped naked, and then crucified and hung up to die as a criminal in front of everyone. And who took all of the punishment that our disobedience to God deserves in our place on the cross, suffering the agony of God's wrath against sin because he loves us. And because he wants us to be in eternity with him. 
He loved us so much, he was willing to completely deny himself every earthly pleasure that he was the only one he ever entitled to it in order to win eternal life for us. John wants to remind us of that, of everything that Jesus has won for us to keep us from loving the world too much. Remember the riches and the pleasure and the glory and the happiness and joy that is 100% reserved for you in heaven. That is yours if you're a Christian. That is guaranteed. So keep thinking about it. Keep reminding each other of it. That's why we need each other as a church family to remind each other of this. I was at a conference once and I heard it explained this way and you'll see why this stuck with me. Uh, Imagine you've got in from school and you're absolutely starving. You know that hunger you get only after school, that kind of craving. And your mum's there and she says, don't worry, I've got you this steak. And it looks like a beautiful, juicy, delicious, fantastic, best cut of steak you could ever imagine. She says, it's yours. I'm just going to start cooking it for you. By the way, sorry, mushrooms don't cut it for this illustration. Any vegetarians in the room? Sorry. But your stomach's rumbling. Your mum starts cooking this steak, but your tummy's, I am hungry. So you open the fridge while the steak is sizzling on the pan, and you start picking at the little wafer-thin ham. You know that stuff that's like 80% water? You start picking at that. Why? That steak is yours. You're not going to get filled up on this wafer-thin ham. If anything, it's going to fill a gap that the steak could fill in the future. You don't need it. It isn't going to fill you up, and you've got something better ahead of you. So what do you need to do? The answer is you need to smell the steak. Smell the steak and remember what you've got coming for you, guaranteed to help you wait. And that's what John is saying here. The way to not love the world too much is to smell the steak. Again, I'm really sorry, vegetarians. Our hunger is never going to be satisfied by the wafer-thin ham of this world. We are never going to be full up by it. If we want something better, sorry, if we have that desire, it's a sign that we're built to want something bigger and better and deeper. We're designed for steak, spiritually speaking. So smell the steak. You see, instead of telling us not to do something, John is also telling us to actively do something, to smell the steak, to smell eternity, to keep our eyes fixed on that here and now. He says, yeah, don't love the world because everything in it is passing away. Instead, love God, because his kingdom and what he calls you to do lasts forever. God's eternal kingdom is guaranteed, and it's far better than anything this world can throw at us. And because of that, we're now free to miss out on a new house, or the best phone, or whatever pleasure, or relationship, or success, or the big car, or the house, or the holiday, we can happily give up on all of that for the sake of obeying God and serving his people. Smell the steak. My sister wrote that and gave it to me as a teenager, and I kept it in my wallet for about 20 years. Need reminding of it. So it's worth asking, what is the wafer-thin ham we're tempted to dip into? The good thing that we've made into a God thing, a too big thing. What are our lusts of our eyes and the pride of our possessions? One way to work this out might be to answer this question. Would I be willing to go without that thing for the sake of obeying God and loving my brother and sister in Christ? Would I be willing to give up on hanging out with my friends at school 
to go and hang out with the Christian who's always mocked and picked on and on their own? Would we be willing to go without a big holiday next year in order to give money to somebody who needs it to pay their bills or buy food? Would we get a smaller, older car or an older phone contract to give more to Avenue or to somebody here who doesn't have anything? Are we willing to be that radical with our possessions, confident that it's all passing away anyway? And we've got far greater joy coming ahead. What about our time? Are we willing to give up on an activity that we or our kids might enjoy in order to obey God and gather with and love and serve his people? Even little things. You're willing to get up 20 minutes earlier to come and serve tea and coffee. Whether that's on Sundays or midweeks, what is it that if God commands us to do it, we're not willing to give something up to do? Are there good things that we've accidentally got in the wrong order that stop us obeying God? We need to know what our lusts of the flesh are, the things we see and want, or the things that we have and won't give up on. Again, it isn't wrong to enjoy the things of this world, but don't make the things of this world more important than they are and try and get more pleasure from them than we were ever designed to. Instead, invest in the things God commands us to get invested in and it'll last for eternity. John tells us this because he knows that there are going to be people who claim to be Christians who who say the opposite of this. You can do what you want. You'll be right. That's why John is writing it to these guys because that seems to be what those Christians who'd gone off with the other teachers were teaching and saying, ah, why are you living such lives of denial? Do what you want. Enjoy yourself. Those false teachers seem to be teaching the opposite of this truth. And so John wants to remind them, no, we sacrifice things now when we live for eternity. Ignore those false teachers. They're teaching nonsense. Don't live for now and miss out on the future. Yes, we can enjoy the world. We can look forward to things in this world, but we're called and free to enjoy this world in its right context as a gift from God for us to worship him with and to love others with and if we make god's gifts bigger than we should if the lust of the eyes and the pride in possession stops us from obeying god then john wants to warn us that we might have our priorities wrong and that might indicate something we don't want it to indicate but don't make the world the wrong priority in your heart john says instead pursue god wholeheartedly And he will abundantly fill you because the world, all the things we can lust after and make us too important, it's all passing away. But God's kingdom lasts forever. One old church father, I think maybe John Chris Austin again as well. I should have written it down. He said it like this, love God and do what you please. Because if we're loving God wholeheartedly, our pleasures and our desires will be to want to please him. And this will live itself out. Put him first. Put his priorities as revealed in his word first. And that will last forever. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to close by talking to you because I want you to, um, this might feel like a big thing to ask, right? This feels like a lot to give up for something that might not be true. And also, this this world's great. It's full of good pleasures. So I want to ask you a quick question. I've got a rope here uh, borrowed from the Watsons. It is, uh, imagine that this rope goes down there, goes out the door, then travels around the world three times, and then shoots off into space, keeps going and going, it doesn't, but imagine it does, goes out beyond Pluto, still a planet, uh, and keeps going. 
That is a great picture and illustration of what eternity is like. This bit in my hand is the bit we're alive on earth. Does it make sense to live for this now and lose all that? Logically, does that make sense? To go, I want to live wholeheartedly for here and rather than eternal life, suffer something far worse that the Bible sets before us. Are the pleasures of here and now and this little bit of time in my hand, does that stop us from living for this? Is that stopping you from living for this? Can you see why that is ridiculous? This is such a brief sneeze of time. This is eternity. Do not give everything for this and lose that. That's what John calls us to remember tonight. Don't focus on this one little part here because you only have one chance. Only one life. Don't sacrifice eternity for this little bit, this here and now. Don't forfeit eternity for a little pleasure, a little sin, a little comfort. Don't let this tiny part dominate so much and stop you getting all this. Because after this bit, we will all stand before God in judgment. And all that will matter then is what we've done here, whether we follow Jesus here and now. And if not, you'll lose it all. Are you doing that? We love you enough to ask that question. Are you doing that? Are you hoarding up riches in here but lose riches for eternity? It might be John Chrysostom again that said it. <laughs> I really should have written this down. A rich man without God is just a poor man with money. Don't live for this. Can you see why living for this bit is a waste? Why it's daft to give up all of this for the sake of a little bit of that? Smell the steak. We all need to do it. We all need to be reminded of it. We need each other to help us do that. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Which will you choose?